name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. There was once a day in our Western American culture that the idea of the traditional family and the, uh, excuse me, the traditional marriage and the nuclear family were both revered and promoted within our culture. They, they were honored because this is the family structure that God puts forth in his Bible as his plan for us and his ideal plan for us. God's plan was that one man and one woman would choose each other and they would come together and they would form something new, a new unit, a new family, a new bond that was to last for forever until death of one of them. And, and it was in this bond that God would bring forth children. And God's design was that these two parents that they would come together and they would care for and nurture their children so that their children would love them, love others, and ultimately love God. But unfortunately, from the very beginning of creation, man in his brokenness hasn't been able, and, and by brokenness I mean his selfishness really, he has not been able to make God's ideal plan really work. In the first family, one son kills another. And subsequent families after that, they introduce polygamy, uh, they introduce uh, adultery, they, they continue to murder each other until it's, it's finally so broken, it's so broken that God decides to destroy and kill most of mankind, which he does. And he'll start again, so to speak. But in subsequent generations, uh, it doesn't fare any better. And the family becomes dysfunctional and a failure. Richard Bulleth, who was a general, past general editor of Newsweek magazine, he once said, and I quote, It is novel and bizarre of us, latter-day Westernoids, to imagine that we can make something tolerable of marriage. It doesn't seem to have occurred to any earlier era that this was even possible. The Greeks were against marriage, and the Romans mocked it and perverted it. So, you know, the whole, ideal of, uh, the whole idea of God's ideal marriage, one man, one woman for a lifetime, and God's ideal of a nuclear family where those parents would then raise children, according to uh, Mr. Boeth, it's never been able to work. And, he, and, it, and it, it has had its problems throughout every generation, but that nonetheless was God's ideal. And let me tell you that because of our Judeo-Christian heritage as a nation, what I mean by that is that a lot of the men and women who came across the big pond to, to start this country, or they came because of religious freedom. They came because they wanted to be able to worship God as they understood him being revealed in the scripture. And so they came across here. And so written into the, the, what's that saying, the warp and whatever, the, whatever that saying is, written into the fabric of our, of our nation was this Judeo-Christian ideal of what, of, what the, of what marriage was and what the family was to be. And for the next couple of centuries, now listen, I got to be careful not to conflate God's people and God's kingdom, this is a warning for man. I need to not conflate that with our nation. But in our nation, this Judeo-Christian influence affected our culture. And it so affected our culture that in our culture for the next two centuries, from when, when our forefathers came over here, and maybe even longer, there was a cultural ideal, I mean, a, a cultural pressure towards God's ideal. Y'all follow me? I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about us as Christians. Hopefully we would hold to God's ideal and God's standard and God's perfect family or the way he, he wanted the family to be and the, and the marriage to be. But there was a cultural pressure towards this as well. 
It wasn't until after World War II and uh, the middle of the 20th century that the family, the, the nuclear family and traditional marriage took a hit in our culture, it took actually several hits in our culture, really big hits. And, and in the 19, uh, in the, since the 1960s, there's some statistics since the 60s. So back in the 60s, uh, the nuclear family, that is a family with a dad and a mom and children, it was at 44% back in the 60s. Out of all the households in our culture, 44% of them were a nuclear family as we've described it, right? Today, that number is less than 19%. That means less than one in five family units in our culture today consist of a dad and a mom who are married with their kids. It used to be that the biggest hit on the traditional marriage or the, or, or the traditional nuclear family was divorce. In 1912, uh, one out of every 12 marriages ended in divorce. By 1932, it was down to one in every six. Today, it's one in every three. And I have in my notes to say that, you know, that statistic isn't different between Christians and non-Christians, right? So it isn't, difference, it isn't different in our churches versus in our culture. And that's not really fair, and that's not really true. Okay, and if I just take in our culture and say anybody who claims to be a Christian, you know, regardless of any other data, then yes, it's one in three, the same as in our culture. But, but if I were to put some caveats on that, like a Christian who is involved in their church family, who, who prays together, who leads their children to church and prays and with their children, teaches that, that number would not be one in three. It would be, it would be much, much uh, different than, than that. It'd probably go, I don't know how many, I don't know what the statistic would be, but it would not be one in three. My father once pointed out to me that in our family tree, there were no divorces amongst my great-grandparents. There was no divorces amongst my grandparents, no divorces among my parents' generation. Unfortunately, that's true, not true in my generation, in my subsequent cousin's generation. There's lots of divorce uh, in, my, in, in those generations that followed. So divorce was a big hit on the, on the traditional marriage and the nuclear family as God defined it as his ideal. Another big hit on God's plan for marriage was the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Along with a family uh, plan that consisted of a dad and a mom and kids, God also created sex to be involved, be a part of God's ideal marriage and God's ideal family. And generally speaking, up until the 1960s, there was a cultural pressure outside of the church that pressed us towards that same normative God ideal, right? Within our culture, not just within the church. Hopefully within God's people, it's still there, right? But within our culture anymore, it's definitely changed. And uh, so God desired sexual relationships to be within the confines of marriage, but in our culture, that's changed. Today, the war for biblical sexuality is lost. And, and I listen, I say that with, I don't, you can disagree with me all you want. You can think American culture is going to return, but you are wrong. It is not. We've lost that battle. And the American culture has embraced sexual relationships as being morally neutral at worst, morally good at best, and equal no matter what they are. Sex among unmarried, children, uh, unmarried people is viewed just as a part of dating. And if you hold to a different view than that, you are said to be prudish, and you are said to be on the wrong side of history, and you are said to be old-fashioned if you see sex as God's gift just for the marriage relationship in our culture. In the 1960s, the number of couples that lived together without being married was, uh, was 15%. Today, it's 35% uh, of young couples live together, are living together. Of, in, in, the, in all the couples, 35% of them are living together and married. If you were to add to that all the young couples who have lived together prior to marriage, that number would even be higher. Living together as a couple outside of marriage has become the norm. And listen, even among those of us who claim to follow Jesus, this has become the norm. I remember a few years ago, a couple years ago, uh, a friend of mine who's a Christian called me and, and he was crying 
literally crying tears over this question of whether they would live together or not prior to marriage. And I was telling him, that's not what God desires of you. You know, we've embraced all forms of sexual relationships as morally neutral or even good. Not only just heterosexual relationships outside of marriage, but homosexual sex. We've said it's normative and it's good. We've embraced polyamory. Polyamory is the, the idea that everybody can, uh, I mean, you can have more than two people involved in a relationship, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. We've said, hey, it doesn't matter. You have as many people involved in a sexual relationship as you want. That's polyamory. We haven't embraced bestiality yet or pedophilia. And, and, and again, I'm not a prophet, but I, I would suggest that in the generations to come, I, you know, at least pedophilia is already, there's already people pushing for the legalization of pedophilia. And, and so I, I would say that at some point, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to just cast aspersions or boogeymans at people on the other side. I'm simply saying that when you say there is no God ideal to marriage and sexuality, these things are coming. So if I live long enough, I believe I'll see them. If I don't, but some of you young people, I believe your generation will see those things. Another hit on the traditional family and, uh, and, and marriage it has been the complete redefinition of what marriage is uh, for, for, for all of human history, right? Back in the 1990s, we saw it coming. And so the Congress, in our culture, adopted DOMA. You remember what DOMA is? The Defense of Marriage Act. And the Congress, Congress filled this out. And they said, yep, the marriage is going to be defined as between a man and a woman. And so they adopted this. That was a shot down as being unconstitutional uh, by, with the Oberg Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court. It was either 2013, I think it was 2013 and upheld in 2015, but the DOMA Act was, was uh, sent down in flames. And today, all states have redefined, in our culture, all states have redefined marriage to be between two people, regardless of biological gender. Some states are now on the verge of defining marriage. This is up in the Northeast. They are, they are talking about redefining marriage as being between more than just two people. It can be between three people or four people. And if, if that hasn't already happened in the Northeast, it'll soon happen. And probably will sweep across the country at some point where marriage can be uh, some sort of legal contract between more than just two people. Traditionally, a family was a dad, mom, and kids, and family extended to biological relationships as well. But today, a family is anyone and everyone that chooses to be called family. And, and please don't misunderstand. I do recognize that people can, can have relationships with, with others that are so tight, that are so close, that are so loving in a good way that they consider themselves family. I totally get that. But we, we've redefined family. And so today, a family can be anything you want it to be, really. And, and it doesn't, you don't even have to live together to be family. Unfortunately, as the traditional family broke down, much else began to change in culture as well. And, and I would say not for the better. Dysfunctional families became something that, that was definitely so much more prevalent in our communities and in our culture and in our world. Now, please, please, please don't hear me saying that, hey, the breakdown of the family in the U.S. brought about dysfunction in the family. Dysfunction in the family, as I said at the very beginning of this, though God had an ideal for the family, we've always struggled with dysfunction because of our own brokenness. And I mean, everybody's broken, right? So because of our sin, dysfunction has always been around. If you know your Bibles and you know about Isaac and Rebecca, wouldn't you say they had a pretty dysfunctional family? I mean, the dad and the mom choosing one, pitting each other against the other one, deceiving the parents for the other one's, for the other kid's sake, and then the kids dividing and hating one another for years. I mean, there's a lot of dysfunction in, in, in the Bible, okay? But my point is this, that the more broken families are in culture, the more culture is going to break down with even greater dysfunction. Carl Zimmerman wrote an important book a number of years ago called Family and Civilization. 
He was a Harvard professor. He studied 3,000 years of family life, and, uh, and he, he wrote this book. And here's the summation of his book, right? He said, so goes the children, so goes the culture. Or so goes the family, so goes society. The declining life of children translates into the declining life of culture. And Carl Zimmerman gave seven, seven warning signs of a declining nation. Listen to them. Here they are, okay? Keep, keep in mind this. I've got some more information to tell you, but just listen. Here's his seven warning signs of a declining nation from studying 3,000 years of civilization. He said it's an increased rate of divorce, quick and easy, no-fault divorce. The failure to understand the permanence of the marriage model. A looser standard of family as a solution to social problems. And doesn't this sound like right now? Lack of respect to parental authority. A promotion of cohabitation over marriage. The breakdown of most inhibitions against adultery. And the acceptance of all forms of sexuality. Dr. Zimmerman wrote, and I quote, As we watch the destruction of the family, so we simultaneously watch the collapse of society. If you're listening on, uh, on live stream and you're not a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you're not really following Jesus, I know what you might be thinking. Well, Jimmy, that's just Christian propaganda. That's just a Christian writing to promote your ideological view, right? Now you're just you're quoting somebody who's on your team telling you what you want everybody else on your team to hear. Well, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong because the man that I'm quoting was not a Christian. He was a secular historian from Harvard University, and he wrote his book in 1947, which was prior, if you would, to much of the things that he said marked the decline of the family. And are you tracking with me? So this morning, I'm going to start a series for the next few weeks. I'm not sure how many. I think, I think we may have six weeks on there, seven, something like that. A series on talking about the family. It's been a number of years since I've talked about the family. And so I just have I'd felt like, man, I, mean, needed, I wanted to do it last year and I didn't do it. I want to do it this year. Let's talk about the family. So uh, we're going to be, there are series is family first, God's design for the family. And I'm calling this first talk that I want to give you this morning, I'm calling it Family Matters. Or family, uh, family matters, you know, like the TV show, trying to be cute, right? But it's not family matters in the, in the things that a family does. This is family matters. Family is important. Family is consequential. Family is so important. And so goes the family. So go individuals in the family. And so goes the family. So goes the culture, the community, the culture. And I would say ultimately even the country. And if you don't believe me, go back and read Zimmerman's book. And what he saw happening in civilizations for 3,000 years. Now, the points of my, my introductory remarks so far have been that God has a design for the family. God has a design for marriage. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it's important that you embrace his design and that you make decisions to lean into that design. Look at, you know, I can't lean into God's design for you. I can't lean into God's design for our community. The only people I can lean into that design for is for myself. And, and hopefully I can influence my family to, to that end. But my goal, so I have, I have two goals this morning. First thing I want to do is I want to show you why God purposed his family the way he did why he set it up this way, and the purposes for it. And, and hopefully by doing that, I'll show you why the family matters. And, and, and hopefully by doing that, I'll, I'll just renew, re-energize, recommit your family to leaning into God's design, as it, whatever that means for you, or how that might apply for you, I should say. And the second part, uh, if I have enough time for all of this, the second thing I want to do in my talk today is I want to show you some personal things that Ann and I did to prioritize family. 
I want to show you some things that we did to lean into this. And I'll talk more about that in just, just a minute. So God's purposes for marriage and the family. This is not an extensive list. This is just four things that I think should be at the top of our list for understanding why God purposed family the way he did. Why he set up an ideal marriage and an ideal family the way he did. Here's the first one. God created marriage and the family as the safe space for children who would be born and raised to people who loved God so that God could, so that the family, the couple could love, teach their children to love people and love God. I didn't say that very well. I kind of stumbled. But God created marriage to be the safe place where children would be born and raised to love people and love God. And I think that's why he created his ideal family, his ideal marriage in that way. When God created Adam and Eve, he told them, listen, multiply and have children and fill the earth. And if you go back through your Bibles, beginning of the old part to the new part, we find that, that children are a blessing from the Lord, that blessed is the man who has children. In Psalm 127, God says that children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and I don't, I don't think he's necessarily saying we need to send our children out. You know, I don't think that we need to carry the analogy that my children are to kill somebody like an arrow might do that, right? But, but arrows were for something productive for a warrior. And he's saying that, God, your children are like that. You can kind of send your children out. And, and if you would, you can send them out to love God and love the world and to change their world now by, because of who they are. And then the, the psalmist goes on, and he says, and blessed is the man who has a quiver full of arrows. You know, imagine being a hunter and you got one arrow in your quiver. I mean, that's good. I'm glad you got one arrow, right? But he says, blessed is the hunter who goes out, who's got a lot of arrows in his quiver. And, and, and the point is, blessed are you and me as a mom and dad if we have lots of children. In Malachi 2, 10 through 16, it says, God rebukes the Israelites because here they are, they're getting old. The men, and of course, they had a lot of uh, prerogatives that women didn't have in that day. The women have those prerogatives today. They were divorcing their older wives and taking on young wives. And, uh, and, and, and so God speaks to that. And this is what he says to the people that he'd set apart for himself. This is what he says. He says, and what, God, what does God seek? A godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your divorce. If he hates and divorces his wife, God, uh, wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, watch yourself carefully and do not act treacherously. The point, the point I want you to see from the Malachi passage, and, and I didn't even read this part, but it says God hates divorce. But, but one of the things he says is there, what does God desire from the family? And this is why God created families, everybody. Get this. It's so that we'll produce a godly offspring, so that we'll produce children who love others and love God. That's, that's one of the primary purposes for the family. And that's why family shouldn't matter to you. A family is the place where we primarily pass on faith. And it's the place where we pass on what it means to love God and follow God to the next generation. And, and an implication of this, you know, is that marriage should be the place where sexual joy is experienced and lived out. Sex isn't just for children, everyone. It's, it's much bigger than that, okay? But one of the primary purposes for it was that you and I would have children that we could raise to love God and love others and send them into the world. You know, kind of like... Uh, that soya grass, I don't know what kind of grass you plant, but isn't that soya grass that you, you get a little plug and you put it in and you put it like six inches over and you put another plug and you put another plug six inches over and you come back a little bit later and those plugs have just kind of covered everything, right? So I, I think it's kind of like that. I send my children out in the world to redeem the world because they love God and they love others. And hopefully as I plant them in the world, they're going to be changing the world all around them. So, um, so sex, is, sex isn't like playing tennis, everyone. It's not like going to the park. 
I mean, it's about producing children, but it's also this spiritual experience that knits our hearts to the, to the other person. And that's why sex between people who are not married, even if you're in love and planning to get married, that's why it's not right, because it knits your heart to someone to whom you haven't committed yet. It's why adultery is wrong. It knits your heart to another person. It's why homosexual sex is wrong. It's knitting your, your, your heart to someone else. In 2017, there were 862,000 abortions in America. In 2017. In 1980, there was a million point five in that year. So if you're doing the math, you say, oh, wait, it's going down. And it is going down. And I praise God for that. I think maybe in our culture, we are winning the battle to help people understand that human life has dignity. And it has a, that people in utero have a right, because the only difference between them and us is development. Granted, they're in a different spot, but the only difference, humanly speaking, is they're in development. And the only difference between a one-year-old or a two-year-old and a six-month-in-utero is their place of development, right? The only difference between me as a 61-year-old and a 30-year-old is a place of development. And so we're winning the war to tell, help people understand that, that, uh, that children in utero, they, they are real people and they deserve the dignity of life, okay? But... but but here's my point. And by the way, that one, the, the 862,000, I believe, does not include all the children that are aborted by the abortifacient pills. So maybe that number, maybe we're not doing quite as good as I'm implying. But here's my point that I want you to see. We've separated sex from marriage and family. And, and sex within marriage and family is supposed to be the place that, that brings forth children so that we can train them and love them so that they then go out and love the world and love God. And so when we separated that and we're not ready for, for marriage and we're not married, then what happens is a lot of times we, we kill the children because we're not ready to be the family that God has created the family to be because we've separated sex from marriage. So all that to say, everyone, the purpose of marriage was to create a safe place where children can be born and they can be trained and loved and graced by two parents who are just going to send them forth into the world to love others and love God. Here's my second. Here's the second thing I believe that I'd like to share with you is why family matters, because it's the purpose of God. God created marriage and the family to reveal his full character. It's to reveal all of who God is to our, to our children. In Genesis, we read that God made us in his image, and he made us male and female in his image. And what that means is that in my maleness, in my maleness, there is embedded something of who God is. I mean, he's, I'm made in his image, and as a male, I'm made in his image. But you females, you are equally made in his image. And despite what anybody wants to tell us, um, men and women are not the same. We're not physically the same. We're not biologically the same. We're not the same DNA. And we're not even the same in how we think and how we process and what's important to us and, and how relational we are or, or versus how much we're not relational. There are differences. And again, I realize that not everybody fits into, not everybody fits into a perfect stereotype. And I'm not even saying that's what God does. I'm just saying generally, God said, in, in your maleness, you're going to represent me. And in your fa femaleness, the difference between them, you're to represent me. The image of God is found in our maleness and our femaleness. And so one of the reasons for the family, here, here's two implications. One of them is that God's marriage is a place that reveals his full character, his full heart to our children. When, 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 when a parent, when a child has a mom and a dad, they're getting to see this full orbed picture of who God is. That's why God created the family the way he did. Because of our brokenness and our sin, you know, God's ideal isn't always possible. Death, divorce, they leave us in single-family homes, blended families, and, and all. So I, I want to be really careful here to not suggest that any of that other is somehow outside the reach of God's grace and that somehow it's... it's you know, that God can't and won't work in those things. I, I think God's never going to abandon you. I don't care what your family unit looks like. He's always going to be there. He's always going to help you. But having said that, God created the family ideally before the brokenness of sin that brought about selfishness and death and divorce. 
You know, before all of that, right, God's ideal was that a man and a woman would come together and be a family, and out of that family union would come children, and, and their goal would be to love those children and, and just to bring forth children who would love others and love God. And the second uh, implication of, of this is that God wants to reveal his fullness is God's ideal marriage shows the complementarianism of men and women. You know, it's hard to imagine to me that people want to challenge the complementarianism of our male and femaleness, but they do. People are trying to say that there's somehow, especially in our culture, but even in the church, even in God's people, but in culture especially, is this move to say there's absolutely no difference between male and female. And I'm telling you, folks, that's just to deny the science. It's to reject the genetic code that's written in our DNA that makes us different. And so when God created the family, he wanted to reveal, he wanted to reveal his full character. And I think his full character is, is revealed to us in our complementarianism. We're different. We are different from one another, okay? And again, I recognize that I'm being stereotypical. I recognize that there are folks that are outliers that don't necessarily fit in this, but generally speaking, we're different, and we complement one another with our differences. And, uh, and marriage was to demonstrate to our children the full character of God and the full beauty of complementarianism. That in our male and femaleness, we get to see who God is, and we get to cherish it. Number three, God created marriage in the family as a place of help and blessing, okay? When God created Adam, uh, he, he made the statement in Genesis 2, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. You know, and, and just so you know, it's not like God said, oh my goodness, I made a mistake by making just Adam. No, he, he said that knowing full well that Adam's aloneness. Remember, he made us male and female in the image of God. So he made Adam in such a way that Adam would recognize, hey, something's missing here. He made all the animals complementarian. And then, he, then when he brought the animals together, uh, you know, and named them, and Adam's like, you know, hey, you know, they all got a male and a female. Where's, where's my counterpart? Where's my complementary part? And, um, and so God created the family to, to bless us. And let me give you some ways that the family was to bless us. First of all, it was to deal with that alone problem that God wanted Adam to see. It was to be a place where uh, we could not be alone, not have to do life alone. In marriage and family, God's plan is to create a grouping of children and parents so no one would ever be alone and no one would ever not be loved. Now, I say it, I've said it, let me say it again. Our brokenness screws all this up and definitely makes detriments in it, okay? If you're single here this morning, haven't been married yet, but want to be, listen, God's not, God's aware of that. And, 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 you know, he's given us brothers and sisters. He's given us other ways to deal with the aloneness. But his ideal plan, his ideal, his ideal was a husband and wife coming together and then out of that coming a family. And part of that was to deal with our aloneness issue. Another wonderful gift that came out of this helping relationship that God gave Adam and Eve, it was that Adam would have a helpmate, someone to come alongside him, support him, assist him in the mandate that God had given him to exercise dominion over the world. And so marriage is to be a place uh, where a pers persons and a persons come together, a family grows out of it. That that helps. That helps. Now, if you think God gave a husband a servant out of a wife, you sadly miss the point. And you know, there's all that joke. And again, you may go back a generation ago, and men probably did believe that. They probably did believe that complementarianism meant that God gave Adam Eve to be his servant. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus comes on the scene and he says to husbands, what is, you remember what he says, right? He says, love your wives like 
I love the church, like I love the church, right? And of course, we know how Jesus loved the church, right? He died for it. He gave his life for it. He surrendered everything for it. So, men, it's God. God didn't give you a wife to be a servant to you. In fact, the Bible calls us to mutually submit to one another. God was not creating, listen, God was not creating a master-servant relationship. He was creating a symbiotic relationship of mutual care in a marriage where two people come together and they serve one another and they help one another and they work together in this mutual mandate from God to go and exercise dominion over the earth. And for those of us who follow Jesus to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And, 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 it's so, and it's so about serving and helping. So last night I had the privilege of holding little Silas with his eyes open. That's so cool. He's so cute. And I was holding Silas. He spit up on Michael, but he didn't spit up on me. <laughs> Learned something from that, Michael. But anyway, I'm holding little Silas. And here's the truth about Silas. If Matt and Meredith took Silas home, put him in their trailer, put him in their home, and never went back to him, little Silas would die. Because little Silas can't take care of himself. He needs his mom and his dad and his big brother and his two big sisters. He needs them. He needs them. Now, there's going to come a time when Matt and Meredith may not be able to take care of themselves. And they're going to need Silas and Alice and Ada and Sam to take care of them, right? See, see family, God created the family to be a place of help for us. We help our children and serve our children and, and help bring forth children who are going to change the world. And then in the end, the children help us. And walk with us and take care of us. Number four, God created marriage and the family to help us understand in a way that maybe we would not understand his love for us. And so I don't know which came first. I, I, I guess God looked, looked out and he created marriage as a way that he said, this is a way that people will understand how much I love them. And, and he made the family, designed the family to, to, to show us his love. And so a family that's operating and empowered and energized by the Spirit of God and a family that's living like God wants it to be is an incredible high. It's an incredible, staggering blessing. It's an inconceivable blessing when we have a family that functions the way God wants it and love permeates it. And a husband and wife are loving each other and meeting each other's needs. And together they're meeting their children's needs and loving their children. And their children are loving each other and loving them and loving the world. I mean, that is a wonderful thing. And God says, if you ever experience that, if you ever see it, that is what it's going to be like when you're in my kingdom and, and I'm Lord over all and, and you are my people, my sons and daughters and we are the family of God and all unrighteousness and godliness is done away with and Jesus rules of us, over us. That's what it's going to be like. In Ephesians chapter 5, God compares husbands to Jesus and, and, and us to the church. And, and he says, just as Jesus loved the church and the church loves Jesus, and that's, that's how we're to be. And he's illustrating, he's illustrating for us, hopefully in a family that's doing that well, what it's like for Jesus to love us and for us to love Jesus back. I've already established that people are broken. And, uh, and so your, your marriage and your family may not be like I'm talking about. And you may say, Jimmy, you don't know. My family's been so hard. My family's been so hurtful. And it's just struggling. And I totally get it. But you know what, folks? Look around. Look around. And when you see a family that's just operating on love, that's filled with the Spirit of God, and, and just know, man, that is how God loves you. And that is what God has planned for you, even if you're not experiencing it right now. There's a lot of pain in our marriages and in our families. But, uh, but Jesus is coming, and he's going to fix all of that. And right now, look to the families that are doing it well and say, God, that's how it's going to be with you. In the meantime, listen, in the meantime, as much as it depends on us, let's make our marriages and our families what God desires them to be. As much as it depends on us. I really can't control Anne. All I can control is me. I can't control my children. All I can control is me. So really what I should be saying, as much as it depends on you, you make your family everything that God wants it to be. 
You be, you be as responsible as you can uh, for, for your marriage and your family. I'd like to end this morning by exhorting you to prioritize your marriage and your family. And I'd like to encourage you to do it practically. If the purpose of God's design is to build a family unit that raises children to love each other, to love people, and to love God, we need to do some practical things, I think, to prioritize family. Because family matters. Why? Because God created the family to show off his character, to to reveal who he is, to, to be a help place for us, all of that. So for the remainder of the time, what time is it? So maybe, maybe really quickly, Ann, make your way on up here. So for the next few minutes, Ann and I are going to share with you some practical commitments that we made. Now, there's some dangers with this. I'm not sharing these things with you to say this is what you need to do. But I, this, is how, this is what kind of learner I am, okay? I, I learn by, by listening to what you did and seeing what you did in things or watching you do something. So I think it's beneficial for, for Ann and me to share with you some practical commitments that we made to try to prioritize our family. So again, I mean, if, if we were comparing to other families, other families here have made other commitments and, and some, many, very different from the ones that we've made. I'm not asking you to make our commitments. I'm asking you to listen to what we made and then sit down, husbands and wife, and make practical commitments to how can you prioritize your family so that your family is that safe place, safe place where your children will learn to love each other, love others, and love God. So, so with that in mind, let me share with you, let enemy share with you some things, some practical things we did to try to prioritize our family. And by the way, she doesn't want to do this, but she's being whatever. She's being submissive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like, I love the caveats he gave here because <clears throat> we didn't do everything perfectly. And a lot of these things I don't even remember us discussing, but they, ha- they happened. So anyway, I do remember us discussing this first one. We married with a no divorce clause in our relationship. And, you know, that was just something we discussed, that divorce wasn't going to be an option for us. Because I knew his character. I just didn't think he was going to beat me or anything that would make me feel like I needed to divorce him. We just weren't going to make that be an easy out if things got hard. And life hasn't been all that easy for us. But we did say we wouldn't divorce. And I, we have stuck with that commitment for 36 years. And, and, and like she said, and we've, we've been transparent. I mean, it's, you know, our marriage has struggled and we've had hard times along the way. So, but I, I do believe, it's, I'm going to say this to you guys tonight. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, it's your marriage that will keep your love, not your love that will keep your marriage. And uh, so uh, that was a first, that was a, that was a commitment we made to prioritize family. Here's another one. We committed ourselves over the years to receive training in parenting and in marriage. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. We're going to do the most important thing we can ever do, which is raise children. And most of us don't know how to do it. And we come to it where it's on the job training. And not that there's anything wrong with that. There is uh, nothing wrong with that. Most of our training comes on the job. But we, we decided early on that we would invest money and time in both trying to fix and, and better our marriage and trying to fix and better our, our family. So we went to things like the basic institutes. We did Growing Kids God's Way. We went to marriage conferences. We even went to marriage counselors <laughs> over the years. So I'd like to challenge you. Make a commitment. This one I will challenge you to. Make a commitment to invest in your marriages and in your family. You know? Uh, we also, I don't know 100% whether we just sat and talked about this, but I ended up being a stay-home mom and wife while our children were growing. And that does take a little sacrifice because we weren't rich. <laughs> we didn't have two incomes, so it was something that we had to work at. But I did stay home um, while my children were young, and um, commitment we make. And, and uh, I would see it different than her. We did talk about this. Oh. And the reason was because we felt, remember, if, if our goal is to raise our children to love God, we felt like having Anne there with them was an important thing for us to do. Uh, number four, we chose uh, to place each other before our children and our children before other things. 
And, uh, you know, I think we've tried to prioritize our relationship. <laughs> you know, uh, it's hard uh, when you have six children. It is. But uh, so I'll give you something from the men's conference. So uh, Edwin, he was uh, talking about how he got his two children together. And he said, hey, we're all drowning. Which of you do you think I'm going to save? And the youngest son says, well, dad, you'd save me because I'm the youngest. And uh, his daughter, who's the oldest, said, no, dad, you'd save me because I'm the oldest. And Edwin said, you're both wrong. I'd save your mama. I can always make more of you. <laughs> so, Whoa. So, man, I was trying to think, what would I do in that situation? And I think I'd rather all four of us drown together than trying to choose one over the other. But you need to prioritize uh, each other in the home. And, uh, and, and then, and then uh, where, where are we right here? And, and, then, and then another thing I realized that, y'all know I'm, I'm, a, I'm somewhat of a workaholic. And so I realized that I, had to, I, I couldn't have a lot of time-consuming hobbies and, and do my work and then also... Uh, prioritize my children. And so my hobbies were serving as a coach with Dick Lane, David Coggin, and others. That's, that's how I spent my free time. And now that my children are all grown and my kids live off, my free time is doing Ann's yard work for her. Um, also, we made a decision to homeschool our children. And I, of course, like he said, we're not saying this is the way everything has to go. Um, but I think I had a sister-in-law who was homeschooling children a little older than me, uh, older than mine, and I just loved their lives. I loved watching them grow together and learn, and I just always wanted that for myself. So I did want that. Um, I felt like it was going to help me in my relationship with the children because they're home with me all the time. They're not home just right before school and in the evenings after school. And it really did allow us to pass on Christian values to them. Um, and I also felt like it would eliminate a lot of negative peer pressure. And peer pressure is really hard at any age. So I felt like that was going to help us in that capacity. Um, but we did my children as they got older it wasn't like they were just isolated at home and never got to see any people really when they were in high school they played sports with other schools and they actually went to community college joy my youngest actually did go to um, a, a high school not with me so um, we had just a really a gamut of education for our children um, I think the only thing I would encourage you guys today is I think there's just so much that I wouldn't have even faced had I sent them to public school. I think there would be so much more for you to consider in sending your children to a school than I ever really had to consider. So. Yeah, and, and that's not saying don't send your kids yeah, to school. Not. We're not saying that at all. We're saying that was a, this is a commitment we made to prioritize our family and our children. We thought homeschooling would help us pour into their lives better than if they were in, in a school outside of ourselves. That being said, um, you know, today, if your kids are involved in a private school or a public school that is not a Christian school, be very involved with them. Here's how, here's how you can do this very same thing and still have your children in public education. It would be just be very involved with what your, what, what your teachers are teaching, what they're learning. You need to be really in, uh, involved in that. A sixth commitment we made was to establish, uh, to establish family devotions. And so uh, I grew up in a home where my dad led us that way. And I I think it affected who I am today, even though I didn't begin to follow Jesus until I was in college. But I think dad's uh, leading us family devotion wise, and we tried uh, to do that as well, establish a family devotion time with our children. And, and number seven, we decided to live as debt-free as possible and said, you should take that out. And uh, that really doesn't apply. But I think it did because there's two things that are really disruptive to the family. You know what they are? One of them is financial financial problems. They say it's one of the main reasons people divorce is over finances. And and so the other one is, is sexual matters. Um, but if finances is, is one of the major reasons people divorce, we, we kind of made a decision to try to live as debt-free as, uh, as we could. And, and like anything else, whatever commitment you make has a side effect. And the side effect was that uh, we just 
you know, uh, we didn't have cable TV. Not that that's a bad side effect. That's probably, that's going to dovetail with what Ann's going to say next. But anyway, we didn't have cable TV. But it meant when we went to the restaurant, you know, we all got water. And uh, <laughs> I remember being at a McDonald's and some, some couple must have felt sorry for my kids because they paid for our meal, you know, hoping that I guess that we'd get them Coca-Cola for their pizza. <laughs> Anyway, um, so it, it, there is cost to that, but we felt like we didn't want to add that pressure to, uh, to us. She says, read this. Habits are hard to break. We're a bit less restrictive than we used to be, but I still get water at my restaurant meals. <laughs> so, all right, go ahead. Um, we also chose to limit and manage the influence of television in our homes. And I had to say television because honestly, when our kids were growing up, there was no such thing as a smartphone or any of the computer things that you guys have to deal with today. So really, it was the limiting the use of television in our home. Um, we did watch television, no doubt, but we really limited what we did and at the times that we did it. I think it's really cool for you guys now because of streaming. If you want to watch a movie, you can just go find it and you can do it. It makes it great. You don't have to scroll through channels and looking for things. But I think use of television really needs to be limited. I think it just affects people's brains. So I would definitely curtail that. And you know, when I'm seeing television, I'm old. So let's say also computer, uh, computer usage. Uh, games, media, media usage, make them go outside and play. <laughs> so that was all directed at me, that last part. It really wasn't. Yeah, it was. No, honestly. If you would like to take it that way, that's great. It was directed at me. And the final, and the final one that we did was we, we decided that being involved with our church family was a key to making our personal family a priority. And you say, well, Jimmy, you're the pastor. Of course you're going to make church the, the priority. You know, I, I'm glad to tell you guys, before I ever was a pastor, being a part of the body of Christ was the priority of my life as a new believer. And uh, so it, it's not, I, I can say without fear of equivocation or not fear that you could contradict me and be right that I have loved the church family since I became a believer and uh, and and I think the key to raising my children to love God was having you involved in their lives how you poured into them how you supported them inspired them and uh, and challenged them um, there's been so many countless role models among you that affected my, my children in a positive way. So I would like to say to all of you with little children, and again, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I was kind of leery. I actually sent this to Ann and said, do you think this is okay? Because I'm not trying to put our commitments out to you to say, this is what you have to do. I'm not trying to say that. Although in my heart, I want to say things like this. How could that not be your priority to prioritize being involved with the body of Christ here and having your children exposed to all of these godly men and women in our church family? Why would you not want that? But, but nonetheless, so being a part of the church family was another way that we, um, that we tried to prioritize family in our lives. Thanks, son. So let me conclude. This is, a, this is a story. Trapped without a sleeping bag or a tent in the fierce blizzard that assaulted the summit of Mount Everest, mountaineer Rob Hall spoke with his pregnant wife by satellite phone as dusk was falling on Saturday, May 11, 1996. Hey, look, don't worry about me, were the 36-year-old New Zealander's final words, his voice weakening by bitter cold and frostbite. Hall had conquered the world's tallest mountain five times, but as death approached, the glory of the conquest faded, and his heart turned towards his loved one, loved ones. Daybreak, the next day, rescuers abandoned all hope of saving Hall and seven other climbers, and they were victims of the worst tragedy to strike Mount Everest uh, since it was first scaled in 1953. You know, don't wait until you're freezing on a mountain to say, wow, my family is what matters. My loved ones are what matters. Don't wait till something big like that happens. Choose. Choose you this day.
to prioritize your family, to say that family matters and it's going to be important to me. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.